but I'll invite the quiz team to come on up now. You guys can get into place. And uh, once these guys are in place, so we'll, we'll read first, and then we'll let these guys um, uh, recite. All right. All right, let's begin. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, um, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So if you like that, you're going to like the next 10 weeks. Because <laughs> the next, because our quiz team, yeah, grade 6 to 8, God bless you. Have a great class this morning with uh, Pastor Chris Drunen. And team, um, you guys can head out now. The next uh, number of weeks, we're going to be studying in First Corinthians, and First Corinthians is also First and Second Corinthians are what our quiz team has been uh, memorizing. So we're going to get them up here pretty frequently to uh, kickstart some of our, our messages here. But in order to tackle a good-sized chunk of scripture like First Corinthians, it's good to have a bit of an overview of what it's all about. And so we're going to show a video for you here this morning. Uh, that it's, it's about eight, nine minutes long, but it'll give you a, an overview so that you get a bigger picture of what it's about. And then I'm going to come back and share uh, today's message. So here's 1 Corinthians. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. 
and a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities, and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems, and that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts, along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics, but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters 1 through 4, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter, and people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me, right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother, a number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to greet gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine. Paul says it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. He says, remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus's love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, So our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. In chapters 8 through 10, the issue is about food, but not just food preferences, like do you like or dislike a certain food. The issue the Corinthians were divided over is meat that came from animals sacrificed in the local temples to Greek and Roman gods. And there was a split between the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians about how to respond to this issue. And once again, Paul appeals to some core ideas from the gospel. He says, our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus as Lord, not to any other gods. And so if you're in a situation where there's meat that's been dedicated to another god, and there are people around who might watch you and conclude, oh, look, hey, Christians worship Jesus, and they can worship other gods too. Paul says, if that's the scenario, don't eat the meat. Your loyalty is to Jesus, and you should love those people more than yourself and not mislead them. But Paul quickly qualifies this and says, listen, as Christians, we believe God is the creator of all things, including that animal. And the temple idols, we believe, are just pieces of wood and stone. So if there's no one around who's going to misunderstand your actions and you're hungry, eat up. You're free as a new human in Christ to follow your conscience in these kind of debatable matters. So what makes it okay in one situation to eat, but not in the other? The core principle is love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. And love, God's love, is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when he died for us. And so Paul says it's what Christians should do for other people. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul moves on and addresses problems in their weekly worship gathering. 
there were some people who were having really powerful spiritual experiences in the gathering, and so they would start praying out loud in unknown languages. There were other people who might start sharing a teaching or a word from God, and then someone would get up and interrupt them because they wanted to share. And it all was really chaotic, and it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the gospel. So in these chapters, Paul helps them think, first of all, about the purpose of this gathering, to help them see what kind of behaviors are appropriate. He says the gathering is a place where God's Spirit should be working through everybody, and it should happen in a unified way. So he develops this cool metaphor about the church as a human body. It's one, but it has all these different parts. And each part serves a unique and important role. So he goes on to name a whole bunch of things that the Spirit does through all these different people, all for the building up of the church. That's a key phrase in these chapters. And Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be a concept central to the gospel, God's love. And love is a key word in these chapters too. Love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others. So Paul applies all this to the Corinthians' problems. Some people think the purpose of the gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. And Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful experiences of prayer, but if it distracts other people or freaks them out, I should stop it because I'm loving myself more than I'm loving those people. The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everybody can learn and sing and worship and hear God speaking to them. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who were saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil, how it's a source of life and power for us now in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus. It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead, which means this. The gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel. All right. Hope that's clarifying. Is that do you feel like you got a bit of a bigger picture? How many of you feel like okay, I know First Corinthians way better now than I did uh, ten minutes ago? All right. Now you would have known even better if we had a smaller drum kit. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I realized there's lots of moments where I was like, I can't read that. It's great. Well, we want to we want to ask ourselves these questions over the next number of weeks. Um, that last line, seeing every part of life through the gospel, through the lens of the gospel. Uh, let me ask you the question, how do you see your life? How do you see your life? Now, you can't just give that a quick answer because that's so multifaceted. You see different parts of your life different ways. But if you say, how do you see your life? And then you ask the question, how does God see your life? I wonder how much overlap there is between those two visions of your life, those perspectives. Now, we know that God's view of your life is clear, crystal clear. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. And so his vision of his life is true. It's clear. It's, it's accurate. But how much of our view of our life has come to resemble his view? And I think this is what's happening in the Corinthian church is there's areas of their lives that they haven't begun to see like God yet. They've heard this incredible message. Paul's come to town and, um, 
he shared with them uh, the surprising good news about God, about how God sees their lives. I mean, God takes very seriously their distance from him, the fact that their sin has separated them from him. He takes that very seriously. He goes all out with a rescue plan, with a reconciliation plan, so that people can come into relationship with God. And that, uh, the, the pivotal, the crux, the, the, uh, the focal point of that rescue plan, of the reconciliation plan, is Jesus, the Son of God, coming in flesh, living a perfect life, and becoming the perfect sacrifice through his death on the cross. And so when Paul goes to Corinth and he begins to share this with people, people are struck with this. God has gone all out to bring me into relationship with him. And it is good news. People respond, it's good news. God loves me that much. He cares about me that much. I don't have to do all of these things in order to earn the love of God. God already loves me and desires to be in relationship with me. And if I'll only trust and believe and follow, I can have relationship with God. The availability of God is astounding. These are the people who go into the temples hoping to appease the gods. Gods that are fickle. Gods that are, uh, you know, one day, you know, they're hot, then they're cold. You know, as a song would go, you know, you can never really depend on where the gods are at. But yet, you just keep going and going and hoping to some way earn favor with these gods. And he's saying that the favor of God is available to you. It's available to everyone and people respond. And so they begin to experience these little surprises in their lives. And I think it's, 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 a, it's like, what's the word? Epiphany, right? It's like where the light bulb goes on and you go, oh, oh, I used to see my life like this in this area, and now I see it like this. And why do I see it like this? Because of the good news I've learned about Jesus. So Paul writes this letter because there's some very important areas in the lives of these people that haven't quite shifted. They haven't quite begun to see these areas of their life in light of what's true about Jesus and what's true about God's view of them. And so he writes this, and that's what a good teacher does. A good teacher helps us to see things that we don't see. And when and even though he'd shared so much with him, he was there for a year and a half with them teaching, there still was much for them yet to learn and even some things for them to correct in their lives. So let me read to you. It's the, the actual story, the actual story of how Paul comes to them is out of Acts chapter 18. So I'm going to, this is the intro sermon to the whole series, so I'm going to jump back into that. And first, we're just going to learn about two men really quickly. Acts 18, 8 to 11 says, Crispus, that's not the guy we're learning about, we're learning about Paul. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Okay, so we've got Paul. Uh, what we know about Paul is that whenever he goes and tells the good news about Jesus, there often are sort of signs or miracles or things that happen along with that. Sort of supernatural things happen. People get healed, uh, lives get changed, and uh, lots of people respond. And so that, that's part of it. And it says that many people got baptized here as well. Here's the second guy we're going to learn about today. Acts 18, 24 to 28 says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, these are friends of Paul, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, which is, that's the province that Corinth was in, so that's like saying going to Corinth, basically, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, 
for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So here you've got Paul, the founder of the work, the one who first came to Corinth. In fact, I believe that that's probably where he led Priscilla and Aquila to faith in Christ. Not totally sure about that. Priscilla and Aquila, they bopped around. They were kicked out of Rome by Claudius, uh, the emperor. They went to uh, Corinth, met Paul there, since they were both tent makers by trade, because all Jewish young men had learned to trade. They worked together, and, and they, they taught and, and grew together, and I think that's where they became Christians. And then they went on to Ephesus. Paul went to Ephesus. But here's the th- interesting thing. You've got Apollos comes into the scene, and he's bright, and he's an engaging speaker. And when he speaks, like, I love the descriptive things it says about how he speaks. It says, well, he was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures. So that's pretty helpful if you're going to have a guy do some speaking. He's well-educated. He spoke boldly in the synagogue. So that's good. He speaks boldly. And uh, it says he, was a, uh, he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's got... He's got speaking ability, and he's really smart. He's a really, really smart guy. Now, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and gave him a little bit of extra boost and helped him and trained him a little bit more and helped him get there. But you've got these two great leaders, Paul, who came and founded the church, Apollos, who came later and really encouraged the church and strengthened the church. And so you'd think, what a great story. Corinth, this wonderful uh, place where Christians are growing, they're getting to know Jesus more, and their lives are being transformed, and everybody's just singing kumbaya and getting along. <laughs> Except for Corinth is nothing like that. The church in Corinth is in total disunity. Total disunity. Man, I love unity. Do you like unity? The Bible tells us unity is a good thing. Uh, Psalm 133, verse 1 says, How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. I remember when I was getting to know uh, my wife, when at that stage we weren't even dating yet, but I was just, I, we lived uh, several hours apart, but I was totally interested and I would phone her frequently and we'd talk on the phone. And I remember every time we'd sort of land on something that we just totally saw eye to eye on, how delightful that was to me. It was just like, she would talk about something. She'd say, I just see life this way. And I, I see it the same way. It's a sign. <laughs> We're meant to be together. Took her a lot longer to figure that out than I did. And, uh, but it was so delightful to say, oh, yeah, we see that the same. We see that the same. We found this area, we're the same. This area, we're the same. This area, we're the same. Now that we're married, we realize there's a lot of areas we were not the same. But there's a lot of areas where there is. There's a lot of areas where there is. I I remember reading James Dobson's comments about that way back then, before I was married. And he would say, uh, similarities that you have are money in the bank. And differences you have, even though they're charming, are debts that you owe. (laughs) And it's better to have more money in the bank than debts that you owe. (laughs) It's great when you have unity. It's great when you have unity. My wife and I, we have almost no similar shared activities. We figured that out after we got married. Well, actually, our premarital counselor told us, but I think we're too in love to listen. It's like, what are we going to do together now that we're married? You like this? I don't like that. I like this. You don't like that. Wow. But we figured it out. We figured it out. We found out we've got a sliver of life that overlaps. And we love that sliver. We just live there. We just live there. How good and how pleasant it is when you dwell together in unity. But the Corinthian church was not in unity. The incredible disunity, and it's centered around three guys, but mainly two. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. So Peter would have have cast a shadow over almost any church because he was sort of the first, uh, you know, main guy from Jerusalem. Uh, So he would have had influence in almost every area. And every time a church would be established... Peter would probably write letters or visits or have some sort of connection with there. So some people would always sort of draw allegiance to Peter's. But it seemed like Apollos and Paul were the big problem. That was where most of the disunity arose. Because when Paul writes his letter, he addresses himself and he addresses, uh, he addresses the issue with Paul, or, uh, Apollos. So let me just read 
uh, a little back into our, our scripture here today. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Wow, what is, that's incredible, eh? Being perfectly united in mind and thought. It's such a, again, unity is such a blessing. I remember when Pastor Alan Buchanan, who was pastor here for 17 years, so uh, I was on staff with him, and he was, he was the leader, and we were following him, and probably about a dozen to 15 years ago, somewhere in that window, he took us through training as a staff team. He, he uh, used Patrick Lencioni's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's a great book, and uh, he took us through it, and just walked us through, you know, uh, learning to trust, uh, learning to have constructive conflict, uh, giving attention to results, you know, all these different things. Uh, I never really clued in at the time that when your leader is taking you through a book called The Five Dysfunctions of the Team, that that should probably tell you something about your performance. But um, I really learned a lot through that. That was really helpful. Because, you know, it's amazing when people really work together, what can be accomplished. In fact, Patrick Lencioni, the guy who wrote that book, he went on to write a book called The Advantage, basically saying that teamwork is so rare in organizations. True teamwork is so rare that if you can get that right, you have an advantage. Now, he's writing to the business community mostly. Right? Because it's so rare that there's unity. It's so rare that people truly really form a team that's so cohesive they all got each other's backs they're all working together they're not avoiding the issues in the room they really are vulnerable they really uh they really pay attention to the results they're really bought in it's so rare to have that kind of alignment that if you've got it in any sphere you have an advantage a massive massive advantage and you know this probably from experience if you've ever been in a toxic dysfunctional team you know how much drag there is on your efforts. You know how much you say, you go home and you say, man, if only we could get along, we could get something done. If only we didn't have to fight with this kind of culture and this kind of environment. Oh, man, what we could accomplish. Man, we could get stuff done. I spend half my time at work dealing with drama. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. The Corinthian church didn't have it. And the reason they didn't have it was silly. It was silly, but it's a trap we can all fall into. Since my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And now Paul begins to dissect this. He begins to take these arguments apart. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? No. No, he's not. Was Paul crucified for you? These are all rhetorical questions. No, Paul was not. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. He says, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. And he goes on to talk to the house of Stephanus. He baptized, even though a lot of people came to follow Jesus under his leadership, he didn't personally baptize all of them. I bet what he probably did was baptize the first few, and then he had those first few baptize the next few. And on and on. And he's saying, boy, I'm glad I did that. Because it's been a, become a problem. Because some people are saying, I, I'm, I was one of the first followers in this church. I was one of those ones. In fact, Paul baptized me. Just to let you know how important I am, Paul baptized me. Paul finds that kind of thinking abhorrent, terrible. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. That wasn't the main thing. But to preach the gospel. It's not that baptism isn't important. It's, a, it's an act of obedience to Jesus. And Jesus told his disciples to go out and baptize people. And so Paul would have done some of that. But baptism is about Jesus, not about the person who does it. So when a person is baptized in water, you don't say, we baptize you in the name of Paul. 
or Apollos or Pastor Steve. Or we say, we baptize you in the name of Jesus. That's the most important thing. And he talks about preaching the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now, I think Paul is doing two things here. First, when he talks about baptism, he's tackling his own followers. The people say, I'm from the Paul camp of things. The originals in the church. And I was even baptized by Paul. He's saying, I'm so glad that I didn't do that too much. I'm so glad I let other people baptize people because I would hate it if I had a whole fan club who was saying that they were special some reason because I baptized them. What am I compared to Jesus? What am I compared to Jesus? Because I'm here to tell you the message about Jesus. That's all I was there to do. I would say, I'll tell you the message about Jesus. And you know what? We turn it into something else. And so what he is doing, because Paul would have been up on a pedestal, the starter of the church, the first guy, he would have been up on a pedestal, and he is kicking that pedestal right out from under him. And so he speaks first to the people who might be like, yeah, we're with Paul. And he's saying, no, 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 no. I came to exalt Jesus. And you turned it to something else. Something about me. The second thing, after he sort of put his own followers into their place and said, no, it can't be about me. It can't be about you were baptized in my name. Then he goes on to talk about wisdom and eloquence. And remember, that was Apollos' forte. Apollos was a great speaker. And the thing about eloquence, there's nothing wrong with eloquence, but eloquence can sometimes get in the way of the good news about Jesus. If you go hear a speaker and you think, man, I'm really looking forward to hearing the speaker because they're eloquent, well, eloquence is not going to transform your heart. The news about Jesus might. But eloquence won't. Nothing wrong with being eloquent. Nothing wrong with having an ability to speak or being gifted in those ways. And if you are gifted in those ways, use your gift. But even this whole week of prayer and fasting, we started it with reading the stories about O.J. Lovick. And O.J. Lovick, the guy who founded this church like 90 plus years ago, he said the difference maker, the difference maker in the church was not because of the pastor and because of the guy who spoke frequently. It was because of the prayer room people were getting on their knees and they were calling out to God and God answered the prayers of his people. It was the power of God, not human eloquence. And we live in a day and age, and I'm as much guilty as anyone else, I'm drawn to people who can communicate very clearly. I'm, I'm drawn to, I, I, if, if you ask me what my favorite podcasts are, I'll, I'll start listening off people and usually it's people who they're really good communicators. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's all it is, it's good communication. But no transformation because of the power of God at work, because people are praying, because people are seeking God, because the gospel is being communicated. Well, then we're missing the meat and potatoes of our faith. So Paul first kicks the pedestal out from under himself, and then he kicks the pedestal out from under the people who are exalting Apollos. Let me read some more. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Here's the thing that probably struck me years ago. This struck me years ago. I heard Bill Bright. He's the guy who wrote a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. But I heard him communicate uh, he, he was doing a sample demonstration of how he usually shares the good news about Jesus with people. And it was the most dry, drab, monotone, boring communication of the gospel I have ever heard. It was on a video. We, I paid money for this video to hear this guy be terrible. And I was like, this guy's not interesting at all. He's not eloquent. And then in the same video, he went on to share how he personally, in one-on-one, -on -one, has led thousands of people to Jesus. 
And I was like, okay. Okay. Be quiet, Steve, and listen. It's not eloquence. It's not eloquence. It's the power of God. When you read more, Bill, Bill Bright, he just talks about, you know what, you just can't do this without the Holy Spirit. When he brings leaders in to train them, he, just, he spends a lot of his time just saying, hey, we just need to cry out for the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can be used of God. Have you, have you known that about people? Have you ever met someone and you say, I don't know how God uses them. They're just so, you know, plain and they just don't seem like they've got very much going on and yet God does. And then you meet other people and you say, boy, God's really going to use them because they're so talented and God just says, oh, I'm going to show you how foolish that thinking is. In fact, that's what the rest of the text is saying. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Well, those would be good people to share the gospel. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased. I don't know what that means exactly. Did God get a chuckle out of it? God really enjoy it? Was it a belly laugh? God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. When everybody else has it set up a different way, oh, it's going to be eloquent. It's going to be brilliant. He says, the Jews demanded a sign, demanded signs, and Greeks looked for wisdom. Wow, that is like almost carbon copy what Paul and Apollos was. When Paul came, miracles happened. That would have pleased the Jews. They demanded a sign. They were looking for the miraculous. Oh, but the Greeks, they wanted philosophy. The Greeks were the center of philosophy, so they wanted wisdom, right? So Apollos would surely be right up their alley. I've lost my place here. Here we go. Thank you. <laughs> I'm still lost. <laughs> yeah, the Jews, thank you. Jews, I couldn't find it. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Where's the power? Through the preaching of Jesus. What? The Jews stumbled over that. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. Say, oh, this is foolishness. We, we want more philosophy. Share with us more ideas. We want intriguing new ideas. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, as if God could ever be foolish, but Paul's using a play on words. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God, as if God could ever be weak. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. It's a nice thing to write in the letter. You're not very smart. Not many were influential. You weren't very popular. Not many were you of, of, of noble birth. Did you know, some authors say that some of the early churches in the New Testament, they think were 70 to 80% of them were slaves. How is a church full of slaves going to influence the empire? How did it influence the empire? Because it did. Through the power of God. Through the preaching of Jesus. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not, they just seem like they're nothing, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God's intention with doing this in such a different way is to crucify human pride. So that no one will boast before him. We, God wants us to see clearly. He doesn't want us to be confused. 
He doesn't want us to, to uh, look at our life and say, look what I made, look what I did, look through my skill, my ability, my eloquence, my wisdom, my power. He doesn't want us to, to be able to stand and say, look what I did. Oh yeah, and there was a token amount of God involved. He wants us to see clearly and to understand the real dynamic that's happening. Some of it's behind the scenes and unseen, but he wants us to understand. It says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. How did you become a Christian? Because of God himself. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who's become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I remember pretty well the day one of my biggest heroes fell. Now, I had held this leader in really high regard. I, I was one of, I think, many of my sort of peers who would tell story and story and story about this leader and their courage and their faith and their against all odds and their wisdom and their brilliance and their, the, the, some of the zingers they used in confrontations and how they'd come out the other side unscathed. And, and I, I had told those stories again and again and again. And I remember hearing reports that I couldn't believe that this hero, this leader that I admired and I looked up to, and I thought, you know what? I can hitch my wagon to them because they're going great places and... and uh, as long as I sort of can similar, you know, follow a little bit of some of the clues of what they do, as long as I imitate some of their life and stuff like that, I'll, I'll do okay. And then I got the reports that they had faced a challenge and folded. It seemed like they had opposition and they couldn't stand up to it. And they faced a difficult season and they gave up. That was a gut punch to my spiritual life. I remember just thinking, well, here I am in Podunk, Saskatchewan. Oh, it's also called Nippon. I, 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 here I am in Nippon, Saskatchewan, trying to serve God, trying to, and there was some opposition. I was experiencing opposition a very light sprinkling of it compared to what my hero was facing. But I thought, you know what? He can run through a brick wall. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to just sort of get out of bed in the morning and serve God and, and try not to be too discouraged. But he can run through a brick wall. And as long as he can keep going, well, I can keep going. You know, I'll stumble along. And when I heard that he hit a brick wall, and then it seemed like he turned and went the other way, I caved. I began to think thoughts like this. Well, if he can't do it, well, then I surely can't. If he can't make it, with his giftings, with his talent, with his background, with his track record, how am I supposed to do it? So I went into a bit of a funk. You know what a funk is? It is raw material. It's raw material. And it's raw material for one of two outcomes. You might go into that funk. You might begin to believe some things about yourself and about life and how God sees your life that aren't true lies. And you may stay in that funk for a long time. But it's also great raw material for a transformation. And I came to realize in that time that something was wrong in how I saw myself, something was wrong in how I saw God, something was wrong in how I saw my hero that needed to change. 
See, Jesus, when he called people to follow him, he made it very clear. He said, follow me. Follow me. But I had sort of, in my attempts to follow Jesus, got pretty dazzled with somebody else. And I thought that they were really worth following. And just like the Corinthians who said, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Cephas, I was like, I, I feel good being connected, knowing this guy, telling his stories, following his adventures. We all do this. We all do this. Right? You got your favorite sports team, and you feel really good about your sport. You feel good about football when the riders win, but you aren't any better at football than you were last year. In fact, you may have declined. <laughs> I don't know what your time is for, you know, the 40, but it might have gone down. But somehow, in identifying with somebody else, we feel better. We're living vicariously through them. God wanted to redirect me. He wanted to say, you know what? You've been following this one, and now I want you to follow me purely, simply. You've been telling stories and stories about the person who has great faith in me. You've been boasting in them, but you need to boast in me. You need to find your faith in me. You need to find your strength in me. If there's any vicarious living, it's vicarious living through the one who died for me and rose again. And so God just did this corrective work in my life. That, that funky period was raw material in my life to correct my viewpoint and to take me away from hero worship of a, of a man. I don't know how I got there. I mean, when I read the Bible, it says that we're all sinners and we all need the saving grace of Jesus in our lives to bring us into relationship with God. So surely that was true of my hero, but somehow that wasn't in my thoughts. I just thought of what an amazing follower of God they were, and they were, they were just amazing. They could do no wrong. And that's not a very accurate way to see people. We, there's two extremes I see that happen. One is they can do no wrong. That's not true. The other one is nothing they do can ever be right. <laughs> and I think in Corinth that was seeping in. Paul, he can do no wrong. But Apollos, like, you know, he's sort of chopped liver, and I don't, you know, I'm not going to listen to anything he's got to say, and I don't think he's got anything to add because we've got Paul. And the Apollos camp is like, Paul is yesterday's news. Apollos is where it's at. Can't believe you're still reading those letters from Paul. They're never going to amount to much. So whether it's a cynicism that just blankets a person and throws out everything they say or whether it's a hero worship that uh, elevates a person and just embraces everything they say. Neither is accurate. We're sinners saved by grace. So yes, the grace of God flows through us to other people if we allow God to do that. And yet we're still in process of God working out a lot of the kinks in our lives, a lot of the, the, the ways in which sin has, has held us down. And so we need to have an accurate view of people. And God corrected that in me, in that area of that friend. And I began to start systematically walking through, in prayer, each significant leader in my life. So I started with that one that God made it really clear with. I said, okay, I don't know where they're going to end after this falling. Maybe they'll get back on their feet. Maybe they'll, they'll never follow you again. I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm choosing Jesus. To, I'm going to follow you, not them. And then this sort of got contagious. I thought about the first pastor that I'd served with, and I held him in such high regard. And I said, okay, Lord, I can't imagine seeing this first uh, mentoring pastor in my life ever going the wrong way. But if he ever goes the wrong way, I... I'm going to follow you. And then it got super personal. I thought about my mom and dad, and I thought, what if, this was the scenario I put in my mind, what if my mom and dad phone me one day and say, yeah, this Jesus thing not working out, we're abandoning it and going a totally different direction. 
And there I was in my young 20s, realizing that my response would be, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, but he's already won me to himself. I'm his. He's got two claims on my life. He's created me, and he died to win me back, and I can't ever, I can't ever not be his. took me until my early 20s to begin to fully own my faith and not, not make it dependent on Apollos or Paul or hero number one or number two or mom or dad. Because the goal of life the goal of all of this, of what we're learning today, is that we would boast in Jesus. At the end of the day, our focus would be in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We follow Jesus. Uh, Paul says it sometimes, follow me as I follow Christ. So if I'm following Christ, you can imitate. And that's a great, that's a great advice. You see someone, they're following Christ? That's okay to imitate. Knowing full well, they won't always be the right kind of person to imitate. You're going to need a whole slew of mentors. You're going to need a slew of mentors because there's going to be times where they might disappoint you. Let me throw this out to you. I don't think anyone has me on a pedestal, but if I ever get on a pedestal, kick it out. Kick it out. I'll try to keep kicking it out and tell you how frail I am. Of how broken I am. But you need to kick it out too. If you've got people in your life and you put them on a pedestal, they can never fail. And your faith is dependent. It's hitched to them, not to Jesus. Kick that pedestal out now. Hey, Jesus, I'm not following a human leader. I'm following a divine one. I'm following you. I'm not boasting in a human leader. I'm boasting in a divine one. I'm boasting in you. I'm putting my, my, I'm putting it all in the basket with one who cannot fail, with Jesus. I'm going to make him my boast. Will you stand with me and let's pray.